Hi there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. Today, I'm joined by Adrian King. He's a co-founder and CTO of Elements.Cloud. Thanks for joining us on the show, Adrian. Pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Can you give me a little bit of background on what Elements.Cloud does and how you've discovered that to be an important thing worth committing your time to? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, uh, myself and my two co-founders, uh, we we started the business five, six years ago. Um, and... But really, the background to, to, to it was that uh, the three of us, uh, with actually a couple of other colleagues, ran another business in um, 1997, which we sold in 2011, called Nimbus. And hmm. we were providing a, a business process uh, mapping product, uh, but at scale. So we were providing ability to build hierarchies of process maps to really support building the, the quality management system for big organizations. And... You know, we, when we started that business, it was um, uh, a, a desktop app selling for 500 bucks a seat. Um, hmm. We were selling, you know, one or two seats to organizations. I think our largest single deal by the time we sold the business in 2011 was just over a million dollars of software for a single deal. So we'd scaled it to the enterprise. We were selling, basically, it was a sort of knowledge management platform for organizations to catch their business processes. And because of the, of the type of organizations we were selling to, um, the, the dominant um, system was SAP that we were hmm. engaged with, you know, the Nestle's and the AstraZeneca's and the Chevron's of this world who are clients. Um, and, and what they wanted us to do was to link the, the business processes. And, and we, were, we weren't talking about BPMN executable. We were talking about very much documenting what the end users understood about how the business operates from a quality management point of view. They want to be able to link which SAP transactions were being used in which bits of the business processes and starting to build this sort of um, system to business process architecture, but not in a way which is very technical, but in a way which genuinely end users understood and way, hmm. actually, you know, in Nestle factories, people would literally walk through the process diagrams and click and launch the SAP transaction. It became, became the operations manual for them. We internally were using Salesforce and um, actually, you know, I've got reasonably good bragging rights in that actually I was a Salesforce admin in 2001. Uh, so now I've been using Salesforce for 20 years now. And, um, you know, we started when there were, I don't know, 15 of us or something in 2001 with Salesforce to replace ACT actually as our contact management system. And over the 10 years from 2001 to 2011, um, we became poster childs for using Salesforce. I mean, hmm. I, I drank the Kool-Aid and... Um, and, you know, before the app exchange, before the ability to, you know, uh, it was a platform. It, it started basically as a, as Oracle forms in the cloud, if you really think about where, where it started. And, um, uh, but as the, as the configuration and the extension capabilities came on, we just built out all our execution capabilities, all our data management capabilities. And, and I had a, as, as well as, C, I started as CTO and then actually I, I, as we grew, I became COO and ran the business, basically every, every function of the business other than finance reported to me. And um, I had this mantra, which was all data lived in Salesforce. And, hmm. you know, we had 300 and something custom objects that we built by that time. We built out, um, and what we, clearly we used our own process management application, the, the Nimbus platform to map out our business processes. And what we were doing for our clients with SAP, I desperately wanted to be able to do for Salesforce. What I actually wanted to be able to do was map which bits of Salesforce and the configuration I'd done were being used by which bits of my business process. Because we were rapidly evolving the business, the business processes were changing all the time as we scaled. And there were basically two questions I wanted the COO to be able to, to understand and answer, which is, if I re-engineer this bit of a business, which bits of Salesforce do I have to change? Hmm. If we decide to, as Salesforce is rapidly evolving, if we use some new technology to enhance a bit of Salesforce, which bits of my business depended on this? And those two questions are actually really fundamental if you're trying to run an operation and use the systems. Because even trying to, we were pretty disciplined about this, and I'm sure anybody who's, who's been involved in the operation side of the business can relate to the fact that it's incredibly easy to break your business. You know, as you change business processes, you realize that there are bits of the systems you just didn't realize supported that bit of the mm -hmm. business. And now you have that, that mismatch in the business. You know, you come in the next day and your business isn't working properly because the systems don't reflect what you do. Or you go and make a change to the, um, uh, the system to, 
to sort out, you know, this bit of a business. You didn't realize there are two other bits of a business completely dependent on what's going on here. You've now broken. So we, we were helping, we were helping our big clients using SAP to actually answer those questions. Um, and I realized that we desperately needed that for our, oh, internally for our own Salesforce system. And we actually by hand actually mapped and we had capabilities to, in the Nimbus product to, um, to effectively manually define the, the configuration of Salesforce and the configuration capabilities then were a fraction of what they are now. And we actually did start, you know, we, we built these mappings against our processes um, and it, it did help, but it was hard work. And we sold the business, uh, the three founders, we moved off, did other things. Um, and we decided in 2015 that actually we wanted to come back together. We enjoyed working with each other. Um, and what I, I came to guys and said, look, there, there is a massive opportunity. Salesforce has moved from being this tactical platform for departmental solutions in most cases to becoming one of the strategic um, IT, IT platforms globally. Mm -hmm. you know, at that point, about 200,000 clients. I mean, it's north of 300,000 organizations using Salesforce now. And because of the evolution from being a, um, uh, a departmental uh, platform, but massively configurable, is that there wasn't a great deal of tooling to support at a, at a governance level and really understanding how you configured Salesforce and managing it. Um, we saw an enormous opportunity basically to start providing a tooling platform around helping people understand how they configured Salesforce, documenting what they'd done and providing tools to assist in um, uh, basically building the right thing. Um, there, there are some fantastic tools emerged over the last seven, eight years, particularly in the DevOps space, you know, the, the Capados, the gear sets, the Auto Rabbits, Flosums around basically taking what is the what was the change set management, which was really hard in Salesforce actually with the tooling, and providing decent DevOps tools specific to Salesforce. The challenge of good DevOps tools is you actually get really good at deploying potentially stuff which you really should never have built in the first place. <laughs> what you really what you know, that's about um, building things right. A lot of what we're focused on is building the right thing. Understanding that actually um, the business needs this capability to support its business processes and make sure you're building the right thing. And building the right thing, that's about understanding what you've already built, um, mm -hmm. being able to make sensible decisions about both the, 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 the to be process you want to support, the impact of the change against what you've already got. And it's all about basically capturing that configuration knowledge as we described it, the knowledge of how you've configured the existing platform, you know, what processes it supports, um, the hundreds of different metadata types that the Salesforce platform now supports. It is, I mean, I, I adore Salesforce. I mean, I'm massively, I think it's a fantastic platform, but the, its greatest asset is it's also massive Achilles heel, which mm. is because it's so configurable and it's actually very easy for I call it lay people to do it. The typical, the, the good IT disciplines are often not applied and very mm. quickly you get basically anarchy can set in. And the agility that you bought Salesforce for, you lose because people are terrified of changing it because they don't understand what they have done to it. And, mm. you know, very early on, I remember one of the best descriptions, we were talking to a senior admin of a, of a reasonable size Salesforce org. And they, they basically went, Every day it feels like I'm playing Jenga with my org. <laughs> oh, it hasn't collapsed. <laughs> I know, and I, I think that's actually um, many, many people who are running Salesforce have that same feeling, which is um, they really, they really don't know what they have and how they've configured their org. And every time they now go into change, uh, are changing it there is a significant risk. Mm -hmm. And with, with elements, we're basically trying to provide a, a platform and, and tooling on top of the platform to help people basically capture the knowledge of how they've configured Salesforce and providing tools to assist in providing um, structured way of thinking about applying change to the Salesforce platform. And, and, and we, talk, we talk specifically about Salesforce, but actually 
the underlying platform and concept is not specific to Salesform. It's off platform. Mm -hmm. We actually have people using this around other systems. It's just our focus and tooling has been on Salesforce because there's such an enormous market and we believe underserved market. So long answer to the, to the, to the question, but hopefully it gives some context to, to why we're doing what we're doing and, and, and the marketplace we're basically supporting out there. Who is your ideal customer for, uh, for elements.cloud? In terms of like size of organization or revenue run rate or uh, so, number I mean, of users, the, however you want to find The reality is, I think virtually anybody who is using Salesforce could get benefit from our product. Hmm. The, re, the, the our target market is we're growing growing out is the um, uh, s smallish enterprise, large mid market at the moment, and the putting our product in has. Uh, change management implications for organizations and the very large enterprises putting in new new tooling and platforms for knowledge they've already got well established pro they've got well established environments and putting in new it takes a long time and there's a re still a relatively small um, hmm. salesforce isv the you know the, the the cost of engaging with the large enterprise is very significant it isn't that we aren't engaging with them it's just that it's not where our focus is what we're finding is that the organizations who have between 200 and three or 4,000 Salesforce seats appears to be the sweet spot for us at the moment. Um, I see. The, the economic buyer is close enough to the problem that they recognize the issues, but they've also got sufficient spend. You know, they're, they're spending between half a million and a couple of million on Salesforce licenses every year. They're probably spending total cost of ownership as another two, three, four X on top of that. There are very significant opportunities to get a good return on investment of putting a, a what is really a knowledge management platform in place to, um, to, to really help them get the return on investment, which is, you know, in the million to five to eight million dollars a year they're spending on the Salesforce platform in totality, their ability to get a, a very significant improvement. I mean, um, I'm, yeah, as you can tell by my hair, I've been, I've been in the industry now, I realized for 35 years, you know, so I've, I've got, uh, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen quite a lot of, uh, of the, of the challenges we have, you know, as in, in, in the, in the IT space. I'm, and, and, you know, I, I started my, my career on massive waterfall projects. Um, you know, one of the, uh, I worked in the defense sector and, and one of the projects I, I was working on from inception to go live was 14 years. Hmm. Um, you know, so I've, you know, the uh, massive, big, big analysis phases. Um, uh, it's, you know, this, it, it's been a, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's really interesting. The, um, the challenges that, that we've, hmm. We've got in the industry um, of, of of how we go and build stuff correctly, and I'm a massive advocate of shift left, which hmm. is too many problems emerge uh, in acceptance testing. Actually, in production, uh, too often we build stuff which never gets used, hmm. um, and these are enormous costs to organisations. Actually, and and often not recognised. And then, you know, there's, you know, there's, there's 50 years of research which looks at, you know, a problem found in getting the right requirement versus discovering that problem in acceptance testing is 100x, you know, hmm. or 10x. And it depends on the, on the space and on the problem right. and on the, but, but the, this isn't, you know, a 10%, it's actually a 1,000% or 10,000% cost difference. Hmm. Um, and I, I think that's, that, that, I've always been really, really interested in how do we assist people in issue identification earlier in the life cycle. A, that takes discipline. You've actually got to think early about problems. You've actually got to do a level of analysis. You've got to do a level of, uh, but you can only do analysis and you can only get the insights if you actually understand what you've got. I come back to, if you don't have the knowledge, you can't make informed decisions. Um, and, you know, I, blimey, we're as guilty ourselves, the times when we make changes and we go, ah, we didn't really intend that, that consequence of that, it's a bit painful, isn't it? And you go, how, how could we have avoided that? Hmm. Um, and that's, 
that's my passion really you know over the years is how do we assist organizations to uh build things better build the right thing um it's, it's it's really sad when we go in and we're helping clients and we go and look at their org and they've they've built some capability and you discover there isn't a single record in the object nobody has ever used that capability hmm. and that happens and you go, I wonder how much effort and cost was spent building that mm-hmm. and never gets used. You know, so, yeah, so that's that's that, 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 that's what really drives me. Um, um, and it's great. You know, I'm 35 years and I still get a massive kick out of the stuff I'm doing at the moment. So you, you described the problem that your target demographic faces, as well as the limitations of platforms like Salesforce that is inherent into its design for I'm pretty sure they have good intentions of trying to make it easy to use, but the complexity can just explode. Well, what, uh, what is... Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the Salesforce is a massively powerful and fantastic platform. But with any of these, any, any of these very com- platforms which you can configure and basically build systems on, they can... And, and it is interesting. I mean, Salesforce... It's very hard to actually work out exactly how many metadata types there are, but it is in the hundreds. Um, every time you configure something like that, it's, it's almost not like just writing code where you've got one manifestation of the um, uh, of, of what's going to execute. On the Salesforce platform, you've got to go and look in a hundred places or plus to go and understand hmm. what you've done. Um, massively powerful. The, the whole low code, no code is 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 quite a it's a it's a brilliant revolution in many ways, but it also makes it far too easy to make changes and it makes it far too easy to make changes without thinking enough about the mm. change. And then the long-term consequences come back to bite you in days, weeks, months, years. What does elements.cloud bring to the table to address these concerns or prevent them at an earlier stage? So, I come back to the, the fact that we're basically providing a, a, um, a platform in which we can allow... Um, a, a, let me say we, One of the key things we do is we pull the metadata um, of Salesforce out into basically an explorer view. It's basically the data dictionary of the configuration. Mm-hmm. And um, that skeleton allows us then to, A, go and do... I'm going to call auto document documentation generation. We can then go and mine information on that to expose hmm. it. And some of it's really simple. It's just showing you um, how many records of an object by record type and the growth of that over time, um, which fields have actually got any data in them. Um, you know, so, so just really simple analysis type stuff that allows you to start to get a picture of what's going on in your org. Um, but we also look and, and surface the dependencies between, you know, if I was to go and change this field, it's used on six page layouts, three validation mm. fields. So the impact analysis of, I'm just going to add a new pick list value to this field. Oh, whoa, it's used, this field is actually used in four flows, two process builders. You know, if I go and change this, what is the impact of change? Mm. And we can go and surface all that information. But what we gotcha. also allow you to do is to add your own documentation. So it's, but in the context, why did I build the flow this way? And actually the really interesting thing is not what did I build, but why? I'm a software engineer by background. Um, and the reality is if I really want to know what's happening, I go and look at the code. Because it doesn't matter how the documentation, good the documentation is, in the end I trust what the code does. More than <laughs> But looking at the code doesn't tell me why it was built that way. And I said, understanding why is really, really, really important. I mean, there have been case times when I've done some work on a Friday and they come back on a Monday and look at it and go, I can see what it does, but I can't even after 72 hours understand why I built it that hmm. way. You know, so really important so that people can actually start to capture, you know, uh, just that screenshot of a whiteboard attached to the flow explains the notes very quick to go and capture and pull information into context. But, but the product also has the whole process mapping capabilities of being able to build hierarchies of process maps using the same notation we had it at, um, at, at Nimbus. So again, you can start going, this particular field is used to support this activity in my business process. 
that knowledge is that, and I come back to that, that knowledge of why that field is being used there becomes really important if I want to go and change my business process. So the fact I can start building connections to that. Um, we've got the ability, I mean, we're, we're, we're ISO 27001 certified, as you expect. So I, mean, I actually had my recertification audit Monday and Tuesday this week. Hmm. And within the product, you can also build basically uh, uh, tree structures just of information. And one of those tree structures is the 27001 control hierarchy. The ability for us to, when we do this, a particular uh, ISO control, we can link to uh, both the processes. This particular process supports this particular control point from information security, but also this particular um, uh, uh, artifacts and sales force supports this um, uh, business control. So what we're starting to do is build the, the, the connections between bits of, bits of information, which starts to build up knowledge about if I go and change this, what am I going to break? If I want to go and do this, that this 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 network of knowledge of different artifact types, that that starts to give you the power to be informed to make sensible and rational decisions. We also have the ability we've got um, the ability to capture feedback from users directly from Salesforce directly hmm. in our product. That um, you can then turn that knowledge into a business requirement. So we have basically have a, a requirement management capability. Um, and requirements, if I've got a requirement, I then want to do the analysis of how, what does this requirement really mean? That's basically, a com we use, you know, the business process mapping allows you to go and explore. If I want to do this for business, what does that mean in terms of the process I'm going to support? The ability to map out the uh, entity relationship diagrams, what's the data? All of that stuff we can now link to the process, to the, the requirement. We also then have the ability to... Um, actually have a list of JC changes, stories of what now change do we actually have to do to the systems hmm. to implement that requirement. So you can see that we're starting to support a piece of feedback results in a requirement. That requirement goes through the analysis to really surface exactly what you're trying to do. By then going through and looking at the process, you can actually start to go through. And I mean, the interesting way our processes work is basically, you know, a very simple boxes and lines. And the box is basically... Um, what you want to do, you've got the resource, who's, who, who's going to do it, the output. That is actually a user story in many cases. <laughs> As a, I want to, so, I, so that I can. Just walking through the process, you go, right, that, we already do that. Actually, we need to change this. This means we've got a new user story. It's a way of doing the fit gap. So we have a, we have a, a, a methodology we can help clients get good set of user stories to actually support the business requirements. Um, hmm. Those stories can be linked to the Salesforce metadata items so you can start to build the, the manifest of change. All of this is about building the relationships between all of these different artifacts. What it means is that when I come in two months later and go, actually, we need to go and do X, we've got a new business requirement. I can go through, look at the existing process maps I've got, go, actually, this I need to change. Um, this means these stories. This story means I need to go and change this flow uh, in Salesforce or uh, add a new object or go and add a pick list item. To... I can then go and look at the history of what I've done to this metadata item before and why I've configured it in the way because I've just got all that knowledge. Before I even touch the system, I can make rational decisions about the mm -hmm. and impact of change. Um, and I come back to so many times you just dump in and go and do that change. And then later on you go, ah, that field was also being used to support these two other business processes I've now broken. Hmm. The cost of discovering that once you've done that change or even potentially put it into production as has happened to us in the past is very significant. If I can catch that during the analysis phase or the design phase, I can save 10x in cost, Great. 100x, well, 2x, whatever it might be, you no, know, depends. That's, that's, that's basically our mission to, is to effectively use knowledge to empower people to make good decisions earlier in the process. 
So you've been at this company for almost seven years, is that right? Uh, about six years. We started six years ago. Six yeah. years ago. You're, you're probably one of the few guests we've had on the show that is north of the five-year mark in terms of like right. five years with the same company. Yeah. How has your company transformed over those years? Um, we're still very small, actually. I mean, uh, we're getting good revenue growth. We're doing stuff. Um, um, I mean, it, it's very interesting. You know, we're, we're, we're three founders. We're, we're geographically very spread. Um, Ian, who's our CEO, is based in San Francisco. Um, we're all Brits, but he's in San Francisco. Um, I'm in the UK. Richard lives in France. Um, hmm. we, um, our engineering group is actually in the Ukraine. Um, uh, I, use, I use a third-party product development organization. Very, very good long-term relationship. Been working with them for, for six years. Um, we, to be honest, we've been, we, we've been on a mission. We knew it was going to take time. We knew it was going to take time to build out a very complex product. So... Um, uh, we haven't been we haven't been in a rush. This is a for us. This is a marathon rather than a sprint. Um, we've we've certainly I wouldn't say we've been on a straight line to where we've got to today. You know we haven't had to we haven't had to do a massive pivot. The the the, the vision has been the same, but we've definitely mm -hmm. we've understood the, the um, and and trying to understand what the what the market needs has been. We knew what we thought we were trying to build, but I think we we're ahead of the market in many cases. Hmm. People, um, I don't think a lot of people really understood the power of really having configuration knowledge at their fingertips. I think in the last 18 months, we've seen a, a big shift in people starting to realize the power of what we bring. But part of that is because the product has matured and we're providing a lot more capability. Um, so I don't think the business, I think, you know, we're um, in, in total, we're now about 40 people. Um, so, you know, we're including the engine and I include the engineering group in that. Um, um, I think the, I think the thing that we probably are now really focusing and we've, we've recently taken a, a, a significant amount of, uh, of money to, to start to accelerate the growth because we think we've mm -hmm. actually got the product now to put mm -hmm. it down. So, you know, we're, we're now starting to hire a lot more customer success people to be able to help or help people, get the value from the product. So I think the, the big transition we're going through at the moment is going from um, really getting product market fit and, and, not, and, and whilst we've been growing revenue, we've got you know, several hundred you know, paying customers of the product and actually we have a, a freemium component and there is a, um, a, a small part, the, the, the core process mapping side is a, a free part of our product. So we actually have I think we're approaching fifty thousand users on the platform, hmm. um, uh, but number, you know, we've got several hundred paying customers now. We've it isn't that we wanted to, not wanted to grow revenue, but actually our objective was to build the product to the point when it really was solving the problem hmm. for customers, and that's taken us five years fundamentally to to really build out a um, hmm. what is a very big platform. Um, and now we're ready to really put our foot down and it's an enormous market um, and we're getting, um, yeah, we're getting enormous, we're getting enormous traction now of people starting to understand that I come back to, if you're spending $5 million a year on your Salesforce platform, you can, um, a significant part of that is probably not being spent as well as it could be in that if you were to identify issues earlier in the life cycle, if you were to really understand what you've got, how much of the $3 million a year you're spending on running your platform could you either save or use that money much better to support the mm. business? And that's actually resonating with the platform owners and the CIOs that we're now talking to. I recognize you're the CTO, but would you happen to know how you got the first paying customers? Um, how do we get our first paying customers? Um, we... We engaged very heavily with the um, community. The thing I love about Salesforce as well is it has an enormous community around there. So um, we just started going to the uh, Dreaming events. We hmm. started sponsoring those. And that basically, that was where we started to get our first customers by basically hmm. showing what we got and being, uh, being very engaged with the community. Um, That's and it's interesting because the last 12 months is, I think, you know, COVID has been a very, very interesting thing in that it's changed the, it's changed the engagement dynamics in the Salesforce ecosystem. Um, hmm. And um, 
you know, we used to go to 20 dreaming events plus a year, you know, probably one every two weeks, um, both in Europe and, and in North America. Clearly those have been happening a little bit online, but it's never quite the same. We're very excited. I mean, Tahoe Dreaming in October is back. We're, we're sponsoring it. Um, being able to get back out, engage with the community, get a lot of feedback from them. But that was definitely, that was how our first paying customers came, was, was basically by being out there in the Salesforce community. Um, I imagine as a result of, as a result of COVID, a lot more business processes get a lot significantly more complex. So they have to mix some people who come to the office, some people who work from remote, sometimes some people who work remote permanently. Do you notice it affecting your business in any significant or measurable way? Absolutely. At two different levels. One is internally. So as well as CTO, mm -hmm. I'm COO. So I, I, I'm responsible mm -hmm. for, um, I describe myself as amazing. I, I marshal everything, make sure all the moving parts work, basically make sure the, the white space between the business silos, and even in a small company, there's white space between the business silos, um, is that even though we even though we started, I mean, you know, the three founders, we're in different continents, different countries, um, we knew that we had to operate well in a remote and, and, um, and, and dispersed culture. We do have an office here in the UK. We had an office in the US. We're now completely remote in the US. Um, but um, uh, particularly for more junior staff where... You know, I, I, I have a, I have some fairly strong opinions about the fact that the, the the remote working works really well for middle and senior staff, where you've 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 already gained your skills, you've learned how to work with people, you've got your relationship and network. I think it's a real challenge for junior staff to evolve and develop into being really productive um, uh, members of of the, the work community, the global work community. Hmm. Without being able to interact in person with people and learn and be mentored, it's it's very it's it is much harder to do it over a Zoom call than on a whiteboard and just when just just listening to the conversation and you know and I, um, uh, and you know we've we've done I think really well of ta taking graduates straight out of college and and mentoring them and growing them you know I've, hmm. um, uh, and I think that that COVID has made that harder we've. So internally, I think it's, we've had to work really hard on communication. I just don't think we, I don't think it's as good as it was, just, just the reality. But the interesting thing is in the UK, we've, I mean, I've, I've, always, I've always been very keen that, that you don't have a nine to five culture. I mean, clock watching type culture is, is horrendous. You know, you should be, I, I've always joked, I'm, I'm far too lazy to micromanage people. It just isn't my <laughs> I, 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 I like to make sure that people understand the objectives that they're trying to achieve and then empower them to do that. And, you know, I've been talking to, to the, the, all, all of my staff in the UK going, you know, um, the, the work-life balance, the, the, the remote working is not actually Monday I'll work in the office and Tuesday I'll be at home. It's most of them live within... 20, 30 minutes of the office, which is, hmm. if you want to come into the office for two hours and avoid the commute traffic, work from home till 11 o'clock. If you want come in from 11 till one, hmm. have some meetings and then go home, pick up the kids if you want to work into the, you know. Um, so I think, we've, I think we've been educating people to that, that use the tools. If you want to meet people, come and meet people in person arrange to come and share the, the office space. So I think, I think in t the, the whole COVID thing is, has, complete, has, has made us think really carefully about what work-life balance is, how do we attract people, but how do we train people? How do we, and I don't mean train formally, how do we, how do we coach and mentor and, and just get people who've only got, come straight out of college or mm -hmm. have only got one or two years experience? How do you get to the point where when they've got five, six, seven years experience, they could work remotely Hmm. But I find it really, really hard to get the, um, I think we found with our development group, now they're remote and they're, they're in Ukraine, but actually my product manager myself, we used to go, I mean, the very early days, in the first two years, I went to the Ukraine 40 times. To give hmm. you an idea, I was flying every other week to the Ukraine to work with them in the early days. Uh, incredibly engaged team, we work very, very closely with them there now, but they're still remote. Interestingly, they moved to remote working with COVID. They had to close the office down, etc. Relative, lots of quite young developers on the team. It was very interesting that actually I think productivity did suffer. I think not that they couldn't write the same amount of code, but they weren't talking to each other. They weren't, right. they weren't learning off each other in the same way. And I look back to my very, you know, when I was in my early 20s and learning to 
to become, I, I was never a very good programmer, interestingly. I was actually, I've always been a much more interested in system architecture and, and that was why, you know, I went down that route much more very early. But it was, I learned by just listening to people and sitting people and doing code reviews and working mm -hmm. on whiteboards and, and that's, that I think has suffered quite a lot in the year. And I spent quite a lot of time recently going, we've, we've got to make sure that the, that the junior staff just that osmosis process of, of gaining knowledge and um and skills and we've got to work out how we do that better in the covid world so that's the internal i think the I, I think the dealing with the customer base both prospect prospect and selling and then supporting covid has changed lots of things which I, I, some will change some definitely won't i mean i think in the us just by the sheer scale of the country i think people are already much more receptive to um, remote sales calls. They, I think using video conferencing, it was already more um, mm -hmm. embedded into the US culture than it was, say, in the, in the UK. And, you know, fundamentally, I can drive to anywhere in the UK or I can fly to relatively quickly, you know. So I think it was a much stronger culture of in-person sales meetings um, in the UK and in Europe. That has changed. Um, but, and, and it started, it was much easier to get hold of people. I think people are now very fatigued by being able to be to to run Zoom meetings all the time, etc. So I think we're seeing a change. It's getting harder again to engage with people remotely. Hmm. People are getting much better. Going, no, I just don't want to talk to you. I'm fed up of doing six hours on Zoom every day. Hmm. Um, so I think there's I think there's definitely been a change in the way we're engaging with our customers. Um, I do think the flip side is once you've in the support side. I think the tools and expectation has got a lot, lot better. The ability to hmm. just jump on and do a five minute web call with somebody to go and fix a problem, um, that's become much more dynamic. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, whereas you know, 15 years ago, if you were doing support, it was, it was looking back, a relatively slow process. Now with um, chat apps, it built chat built into your, uh, into your application. Somebody can just raise a chat. That can be picked up in a couple of minutes. You have a quick chat with them. Um, you know, we use intercom, lots of chat, but you know, intercom's integrated in with Zoom. We can just literally from intercom go, right, actually, can we just have a two minute Zoom call to look at the problem? Our ability to solve issues for customers now, often it can be resolved in seven or eight minutes. And you've actually, hmm. and the good thing is, whereas before you might've done it by email, now you actually do at least have a video face-to-face. -face. Right. You build stronger relationship with your customer solving a problem that we might have done just by email in the past. So hmm. I think there's, I think there's some really interesting change in dynamics going on out there at the moment. On the first thing you're talking about in the COVID culture, as it relates to your internal processes, yeah. I recognize you spent, you've spent a bulk of your career across various leadership roles. What are some of the things that you've learned across those experiences that you carry into your current role? Oh, blimey. That's a long, it's, it's interesting. Cause I mean, I've, I say I've, but the leadership roles have also not just been technical. You know, I've, I've actually been in, in between 2011, 2015, I was actually a CEO of a technology company for a time, which was, you know, mid-size, bigger, just under hundred people, you know, type stuff. Hmm. So, you know, I've, 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 I've dealt with, with lots of leadership challenges and commercial challenges and dealing with the external funders and all that type of stuff. Um, I think probably the single biggest one is, Never underestimate how much time and effort to invest in the relationships with your people. Hmm. We live in a, the entire software game is an intellectual property and knowledge business. It's, it's about the people. The, 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 the real assets we have uh, in, in this business, fine. We actually have our code base in the end, which right. is our intellectual property. But the real intellectual property is in the heads of the people who created that. And hmm. the long-term value is in the staff and the motivation of the staff and making sure we're all aligned and we know where we go. Um, managing relationships and, and dealing with the communication and being um, uh, really clear with the vision with people of what you're trying to achieve is probably the most important lesson I've learned from 35 years. If you can get, um, if, if you can, if, if you can provide that leadership to people, they know why they're doing something um, and you can communicate that and, and, and motivate them. Um, you, you, you can have an incredibly strong business. 
Um, hmm. it's, when, it's when people don't understand why they're coming in. It becomes just a job to pay the mortgage. Okay. Productivity, motivation, desire, delivery just starts to collapse. Hmm. And what was there like an aha moment that re- where this lesson really hit you, or did you like learn it early on and became more reinforced over time? Like, how did that play out in your personal experience? So I actually started a, I, uh, my career actually in the military. Um, so after university, I actually went into the British Army for a short time, and um, um, and if there's something the military is very good at, it's actually leadership skills in its form. So. Um, I think the understanding of, of, of motivation and leadership was a large part of my very early career. Um, even though I did engineering at university, you know, my, 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 my early career was, was very early careers in the military. Um, I think that, so I think very early the, the leadership issues and communication and ensuring that, um, you know, to be honest, motivating somebody to, um, write code is a hell of a lot easier than motivating somebody to run up a hill into machine gun fire, to be blunt. You know, it, you know th- there is a reason why the military, okay, you've got, you've got command structures which exist, but actually it's about leadership and motivation to get people to go and do things. Um, so I, I'd say it was very early on that some of the foundations were put in there. Um, and I don't think I'm a necessarily particularly good manager, but I think I'm a relatively good leader. And I think hmm. there are massively different skills. Um, and I think that that leadership is fundamentally important to create a successful business. You've got to have good management. You've got to have good management uh, practices in place. But you can have great management practices and appalling leadership and the business will fail. You can hmm. have great leadership and mediocre management and the business may well actually succeed. Um, you know, it's... you. So I, I think those that leadership, that that motivation. How do you motivate and, and get a, a team wanting to succeed? Is is I think I learned it pretty early on, and it's it's been reinforced. And um, and I think in every role I've had, and in roles, I, th- I think you often really learn. You know, through through my career, I worked in one organisation in um, I, I was going back well over twenty years where as a development manager, a mid-sized development team. I had about 60 people in the development team at that point in time. And I worked in an organization where the CEO, it was, it was my worst experience. The CEO is fundamentally a bully. Um, hmm. It's a very, very poor, I believe, um, uh, very poor culture. Um, and it was a horrible place to work. And, you know, when, when, I, when I inherited my team, we had well over 30% staff attrition from my engineering group every year. You cannot run an engineering group with 30% attrition. The knowledge just is disappearing out of the door right. so fast. You're spending all your time recruiting. Um, uh, it, it was really hard to set a vision and, and the leadership when the whole culture of the company was dysfunctional, basically. Um, hmm. and, and, and I learned probably more about how, not to, how, what, how to do stuff by what I saw what not to do as as much as what I should do. Um, hmm. so, no, it's been a continual process and I, I'm, boy, I don't think I'm very, you know, there's an enormous amount still to learn, but, um, I, I do think that that leadership, that, that motivating people, making, setting a culture, which people believe in and want to work in is fundamentally important. As you try to raise the next level of leaders within your company, hmm. what are some of the traits that you look for? Or what are some of the things you try to foster? Um, Honesty, integrity are absolutely fundamental. Um, the uh, giving giving anybody who works for you the credit and take and you taking the blame. Hmm. You know, in the end, in the end, any issue fundamentally lands on my shoulders. Right. In the end, so you know, have broad shoulders. Be willing to be willing to take be. If there is a problem, stand up and own it. If if great stuff happens, ensure the credit goes to where it's due. Um, and 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 I want to see I want to see the, the leaders coming up. You know, my, my, the, the people I'm coaching and mentoring. I want to see these type of characteristics coming through um, hmm. uh, in them because 
that engenders respect from the people that they are then leading. If um, um, we try to have um, a no blame culture, and I think this, which is, um, I want to see people creating a learning organization where we all make mistakes, stuff happens. Mm -hmm. um, uh, accept that stuff happens, learn from it, don't blame, no blame, just go, stuff happens, how quickly can we sweep it up, sort it out, mm -hmm. and learn from it. And, and I want the leaders to, to be go, fine, that's it. We're going to sort this out. Let's learn from it, um, um, and and not blame people. If anybody's going to take the blame, it's they take the blame. Which is okay. Something happened here. We and me. We need to learn not for that not to happen again. And I think that's the type of thing I'm. I, I, I want. I want the people I'm coaching to to have that ethos of um, of taking responsibility. Um, uh, and ensuring that credit gets given where it's due, um, uh, getting people to believe, genuinely believe that uh, they can, uh, that the people who work for them can thrive under them. Hmm. To thrive, you've got to be willing to accept mistakes get made. I mean, I've often, um, I've, I've often said we should celebrate failure more than success, because in failure. As long as somebody has done something with the right intention, if they fail, they've got it's an opportunity to learn. Now, mm -hmm. there are lots of times when I grip my teeth when I see something hasn't gone right, but the reality <laughs> is that as long as we learn from that, and we that it's only from when things when things go well, you very rarely learn from them. Actually, right. when things don't go well, is when you get the opportunity to improve. Um, so you've got to make sure that. Actually, if something hasn't worked, people don't try and sweep it under the under the rug or the carpet. Because if you do, you never learn from it. Um, hence, my comment about an honest culture and one with integrity is one where you can learn and improve and become better. That's what I'm looking for in coaching and the, the leaders of the future. So, the last question I have for you is: What advice would you give to someone who wants to fall? Maybe not exactly your footsteps, but similarly down the path that you've down, gone down yourself. Um, I'm going to actually say, which is, don't plan, don't try and plan your career too much. Hmm. Enjoy what you do now. Learn, thrive, never stop learning. Um, um, give more than you take. As in, put in, support other people. Karma, it will come back to you at some point. Your career will thrive if you give to your colleagues, your community. Um, um, and it's amazing what the opportunities will then come. And then take the opportunities that come. But I didn't plan my career in any sense. I just, I, I, I really enjoy technology and opportunities hmm. that come and I've taken them. And um, so in, I, I think the most important thing is be positive. Enjoy hmm. what you do. Um, see opportunities, take them. See opportunities for other people and help them achieve their goals. Um, amazing how they will open up opportunities two years down the line, something will occur because you did something. Um, so my, my comment is, is give more than take. Um, enjoy now. Thrive now, enjoy what you do now. Um, because you learn and because you give and because you're positive, opportunities will come to you. People will hmm. recognize that positivity and want to work with you. And consequently, opportunities will come your way. But trying to over, over plan your career, I personally think that's just a recipe for disappointment, actually. Because, okay, um, I like it. You know, it's, hey, I mean, I, 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 I was talking to a, 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 one of my junior product managers. I mean, he's probably 24, so by my fee, I mean, just, you know, a youth um, uh, about this. You know, I started when, when I wanted a spec written up, I sent it to the typing pool. Hmm. You know, when I think about what, the way we worked, and e I remember email emerging in the office, you know, quite some time into my career, you know. Um, if I think about the technologies and the opportunities and what we do now, I couldn't even conceive of those hmm. when I was a 25-year-old. 
So trying to plan your career, you know, um, I, I, I just wanted to do interesting things with technology. I've done, I've, I've thrived. I've, I've had great jobs. I, I discovered that I wasn't built to be in a big corporate. So, I mean, I've worked in some big companies, but it's not. I love startups. I love entrepreneurship. I, I discovered that I was comfortable taking commercial risk. Um, hmm. uh, and lots of people aren't, but I discovered I was, and I enjoyed it. Um, but I didn't realize that was, I mean, if at 24, um, I thought that I probably wanted to become an exec in a big company, you know? Okay. But actually, I realized that I got a job working for a quite big software house and quite, quite soon realized that wasn't really for me. Um, I got the opportunity, came up to go and take a two-year research fellowship at CERN, the particle physics lab, completely left field, took that brilliant fun, two years postgraduate degree in technology, fundamentally, in the, in the 1991 I did that. Um, that then opened up an avenue which took me somewhere else. Um, uh, I then got an opportunity to go and work for one of the big consulting firms, uh, learned a lot, discovered that actually I was an operational person, not a consultant. I liked owning the operation and taking responsibility mm. for stuff. But that relatively short time doing strategy consulting opened my eyes to an enormous amount of things. Um, and actually, since then, I've, my career has been in product development in different increasing leadership roles. Um, never thought I'd be a CEO. Enjoyed it, but actually realized I preferred the technology side. And I really enjoy mm. being CTO and COO of businesses. I like running, making the t- trains run on time fundamentally, you know, I like making the operation work well and I like coaching people and getting my line managers to function better. Um, yeah, you know, and who knows what okay. I'll be doing in 10 years time. Um, enjoy, enjoy the moment. Well, I appreciate this past. The biggest piece of advice I can give people is enjoy what you do now. I've really enjoyed this past hour. I'm very thankful for your advice and I, I look forward to, uh, meditating on this during my next like meditation session. Perfect. Uh, I just want to leave you with one last thing. And that is, uh, if our viewers want to get in touch with you or follow you along or your company's journey in, uh, your development, where should they go? Where should Um, they find you? So interestingly, I'm, I'm sufficiently old, but I'm not particularly active on social media personally. Um, but the best way is, you know, if, if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, Adrian at elements.cloud. You know, I'm very happy to take emails. I mean, I, it's, it's, it is a bit sad, but I'm still quite an email guy. But actually, we've got uh, elements.cloud, our website, great blogs on there. Um, uh, if you want to follow what we're doing, that's the place to go. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I enjoy mentoring people outside the company as well. So mm. if, if there are people on here who would like to reach out to me, please feel free to reach out to me directly. And I'll, I can't guarantee to be engaged Matthew. My workload goes up and down, but I, I will try and respond. And if people have got questions, be delighted to engage out there. Sounds good. Well, thanks again for your time, Adrian. Pleasure.